Hi, Luke Cheer here, host of the Witch Money Podcast. Join us each week as we bring you the best experts and top advice to help you make the most of your money. From property prices to budgeting, investment platforms to pensions, we'll be here to keep you informed. Here's a taste of what you can expect. If you had invested £100 in the fund three years ago, you'd have just £61 today. Gosh. Is it worth trusting a website that you don't know to save that 10p, that 20p. The good news is it does look like we're hovering around the top of the interest rate hike cycle. If I asked you what you weren't here, you'd be absolutely horrified because we're told we should not talk about money. Make sure to join us for new episodes every Friday and I'll see you then. Hello and welcome, I'm Harry Kind. I'm Grace Farrell. And this is Get Answers, for living your best consumer life. When life gives you questions, which Get Answers? On today's Get Answers, we're hitting the road, at least metaphorically, as today we tackle one of the biggest purchases you can make, that is your car. According to stats from the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, over 1.9 million new cars were sold in 2023, with even more used cars purchased over the last 12 months. Now, of course, the cars that we buy now are a far cry from those we'd have bought in the past, perhaps the ones that our parents were driving or the ones that we've inherited from them, and so many of the gadgets and gizmos that are out there really confusing and go unused by drivers just trying to get to grips with a new motor. Grace, when did you actually buy a car last? And do you actually use all the features that you were told about? I last bought a car in, in 2018 and it was when I was pregnant with my first child. So I realised I needed to probably upgrade from my ancient Nissan Micra to something a bit bigger, bigger boot, space for a car seat. It does have a lot of mod cons. I absolutely love it, but I... Uh, I use about 40% of the features. <laughs> I use the seat warmer. I open my windows. There are lots of things I don't use, to be honest. Yeah, feeling quite embarrassed about it, to be honest now. <laughs> Where, uh, as I had my learner car, which was basically a go-kart, had absolutely nothing. It didn't even have windows that opened in the back. It did, however, have a nice mould growing underneath the main seat. I'm not sure if that was the basic spec <laughs> or you had to upgrade for that. So this week, we are going to be separating those useless, unused features from the ones that really matter when you're buying your next vehicle. Later, we'll be pulling back the curtain on how we test cars here at Witch, and we'll reveal which manufacturing claims you just need to take with a pinch of salt. And this is excellent timing because which members should have received their car guide in the last week or so. But actually, if you've just joined as a member and you missed it, or if you join us in the next few months, you'll be sent a copy. Just make sure you join before June. But we'll have more on this offer in the show notes. First, though, let's welcome our guest for today's show. It's the podcaster, YouTuber and all-round car fanatic, Sam Moores. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us a bit of a background of what you do and, and how you've gotten into cars? So I studied engineering at university, was sort of into cars before that a little bit, but not not tons, just kind of like I could say that was a Lamborghini. I couldn't tell you the model. So during this time, I'd started taking photos, always had an interest in photography. And then a friend of mine started filming cars and going to car events. And he was like, why didn't you come along, take some photos? I started taking some photos, sort of carried on, got into that. So I'm a photographer. I have since started making some videos every now and then. And then along the way, probably four years ago, it's always a lot longer than you think it is. So it's probably six. I decided to start a podcast. I realized that I 
had a reasonable number of contacts in the sort of automotive space, but mainly was just spending a lot of time talking to my friends who were sort of in the industry as such about cars. So I figured it was one of my favorite mediums for listening to stuff. So I would start interviewing my mates. After about five episodes, realized I had no more mates and had to start getting in touch with random people. And then now we're 200 episodes in all long form interviews about people in the sort of car space doing interesting things. Well, I mean, you probably drive more cars in a month than the average person does in a whole lifetime. So, you know, when you're getting into new cars, you're you're seeing different ones all the time, adjusting the seats, making sure the air set for you. What are your pet peeves when you're kind of experiencing a new car? What does annoy you about the cars that you do test sometimes? I think it depends on sort of new cars versus older cars. Some stuff that's been quite annoying recently, a good example, you get in a car you've not driven before and the things you want to do is adjust the seat and sort of get set up and whatever. And most cars now, you can plug your phone in and if you're on Apple, it'll say turn on CarPlay and it's kind of done most of the stuff you want to do, set the temperature. But I was in a new Range Rover. There's no sort of buttons really there. I think there was something that looks like a seat, but you can't move much. There's like two buttons or something. So you press a button that then on the central screen brings up a sub menu with a seat on it, which has like 18 slider options. You're moving at this point in time. <laughs> Probably shouldn't be. <laughs> but normally you just reach down the side of your seat, move it a little bit, and you don't need to look at it. You start adjusting your seat of one of the 14 million options because it's got all the kit. And then after about two seconds, that sub menu just retracts, just disappears. <laughs> And you have to start the whole process again. You have to press the button and then it pops out again and then you start. So sub-menus on screens, that is unbelievably annoying. So much more complicated than presumably some of the classic cars you test, which is just one large knob that you twist or, or a, a, a lever. Yeah, and I, I like having the technology and the, the different changes and stuff, but things like that, I think manufacturers have gone past the point of helpful and we now need to come back a little bit and have maybe some buttons on the side of seats. I'm sure it's there's benefits to making it easier, like from a manufacturing and cheap sort of point of view, of having it all through one display. But there are certain things you want to be able to do without looking at them. I don't know, turn on the music or whatever. It's, it's normally on the steering wheel, but a dial rather than some sort of tap haptic feedback buttons that you're you're driving along a road and you're jiggling it around and your hand's not always in the same place. I don't know, there's plenty of stuff like that. Do you have any, I suppose, advice on that, on, on what are your go-to like tests that you'll do on those month-long experiences that mean that you can kind of make a realisation in five, ten minutes? I think it's really tricky. I, I don't have like a set process. I just kind of get in and use the car. Often I'll get a car for like two hours. So I'm not really like deep diving into stuff. Sometimes I have a car for a week. Sometimes it's a car I've owned or whatever. So you have it for longer. So I'm not doing like a thorough test. But if I'm buying a car and I'm quite a techie person, I like researching stuff and whatever, I will watch all the reviews on that car. Like whether they're people talking about how good it is to drive or whether it's something like I know you guys talk about a little bit about like all of the testing of the amounts of space and yada, 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 yada. I will look at all of that stuff. And most of the things that might be annoying would get flagged by those sorts of things. Which presumably that works when your car actually is the spec that it's supposed to be. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So I found a car 
ask the dealer if the you know any random issues and blah 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 blah. And then about four or five months into owning the car, it's winter, and I'm like, okay, let's pop the heated seats on, and it doesn't have heated seats. No. And as a consumer, how on earth are you meant to know that that's the case? Yeah. I think dealers probably should tell you what has happened. I believe is during pandemic that sort of time there was all these chip shortages and manufacturers started putting out cars with less options and things and some options weren't necessarily available if it was an option and all this sort of weird stuff but now i've got a car that doesn't have heated seats which i just thought it did so i guess if you're buying a car of that sort of age so 2020 2021 2022 maybe you should probably ask the dealer is there anything i should know about this that's not obvious or like does it have all of the standard features like uh, yeah, well, maybe it doesn't. So it was quite surprising, that one. Yeah, it's like we've got a whole generation of pandemic cars where people have got cold bottoms. 100%. Or like slightly smaller screens and, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And that stuff that is very difficult, you've got to ask, I suppose, all the questions when you're buying a car. I mean, some things, I suppose, are more obvious, which is that the car is like almost the size of a house. Like you test classic cars, you look at modern cars, Obviously, they're getting bigger. We've actually done some research that finds that more and more cars now are just unparkable in like the average UK parking spaces. Mm. Is that something that you've kind of come across that there are some you know, fat bottom cars out there? Cars are definitely bigger. It's difficult to say whether it's sort of manufacturer marketing led or consumer led. I think each one tries to argue that it's the other one, that everyone wants an SUV. I think from a manufacturing point, they can sell them for more and they don't cost much more to make, so they make more profit. And they are taller, but generally people seem to want to be in bigger cars. I mean, I've been put off getting a bigger car. I've got a, a Kia Nero, so it's not a small car, but we've been looking at going a little bit bigger. And it is the parking that puts me off. But I, I love the... I'm going to, I probably don't know the right name of this feature, but the rear view camera that lets you see, you know, when you're reversing. I mean, it feels like cars are getting bigger, but that technology is getting more advanced. So that parking is, it's easier in that respect, even though the cars are bigger. But I don't think I'd want to go much bigger than where I'm at now. Yeah, I think it's one of those things you get used to whatever you're driving. So if you've never driven a huge car, once you do drive a huge car, you get used to it. But one feature that is on some modern cars that I personally don't like is electronic side mirrors so little screens instead of side mirrors um so they've got cameras instead you're looking at those kind of the actual really really useful developments that there have been some of that's from regulation some of that's just through innovation there'll be listeners they've not bought a new car in maybe 20 years a whole lot's moved on what should they definitely be thinking this should be potentially top of my list of things to include. That is tricky. Some of these are more expensive options. So I wouldn't say you've got to have it. Um, that just can be nice to have sometimes. Um, one of my favorite ones is adaptive cruise control. That is on a lot of new cars now. And what does that do? So cruise control, you just turn it on and it holds your accelerator at the speed that you're doing. So you set it at 70 and it will, you will just keep doing 70. The problem with that in, let's say, the UK is the car in front slows down. And if you're not paying too much attention, you would smash straight into them. Adaptive cruise control has some cameras and sensors, depending on the car, depends on the set of sensors and stuff they have. But if the car in front slows down, your car slows down. What I've found about using that system is you have a few different options for the distance to the car in front. 
and you probably set it at a sensible distance and then you kind of leave it. You never really change that one. And what you'll find is you're driving down the motorway and you're like, oh, I'm leaving a nice amount of space to the car in front. Whereas if you don't have that system, I would be surprised if anyone leaves that amount of space, which would be considered a sensible amount of space. But you see most people driving down the motorway on each other's bumpers at like 80 miles an hour, which if someone tries to stop is going to be a problem. So that, that's one of my favorite ones. CarPlay, so I'm, I've got an Apple phone and the ability to just plug my phone in and I could have preset my Google, music comes up, often cars have it wireless now. It, that is a, a great feature, easily retrofitable to an older car these days. Oh, how, how do you retrofit that to an older car? You'd have to look up the specific car and model, etc. But you can basically buy a unit that replaces the standard sort of screen in your car with a very similar looking one, except it has CarPlay, etc., Bluetooth and, and whatnot. And you can do that in a lot of cars. It's a real meaningful upgrade. And I'd say that the final feature is an EV or hybrid only feature. It's one of my favorite things about EVs is the ability to preheat your car before you get in it. Now, there might be some Americans listening who go, yeah, my whatever truck has been able to do this for ages. And in America, you can buy cars where you just go beep, beep on your remote. The engine starts across the street and the aircon and whatnot starts running. But with an EV, you can set it. You can do it from your phone, all this sorts of stuff. So in a winter morning, a classic photo could be of an ICE car, so a car with an engine in it and an EV next to each other in the morning maybe your neighbor and you and the ev is like defrosted warm <laughs> ready to get in when you get it in the morning whereas the other guy is like scraping the, the ice off the windscreen and that is unless you have a hybrid powertrain and i think it probably has to be a plug-in hybrid but a hybrid powertrain or an ev you can't do that but it's an amazing feature just quickly sam what are your thoughts on evs do you own one do you want to own one soon do you think we're, we're ready for them I think there's, there's lots of topics on EVs. From a pure ownership experience, for me at the moment, we use one for short journeys around town and stuff like that. And yeah, I have this car that has a sort of theoretical long range of like 150 miles, unless I drove everywhere at 30 miles an hour down the motorway, you might get in trouble. And that works great for us. And we often do longer trips. And as long as it's within that range, in that car, I don't worry about it at all. I wouldn't want to be charging that particular car out in the world all the time, just from my life, I can't be bothered, but it's not hassle charging electric cars. I would look at the range and don't take what the manufacturer says, the W, well, it's not even what the manufacturer says, the manufacturer is not lying to you, it's a test that an outside body has put the car through and it's just not realistic for day-to-day -day driving. So the US have a different test, but that is actually much more representative of what you would actually get. So if I looked up my car, it would probably say 150 miles rather than 250 on that one. And, and actually, that's what we do here at Witch is that we do a real life test on EV range so that you know how far you're going to be able to go in a real life conditions. But we're going to find out more about our testing regime after the break. Last minute escapes in the sun. What is the best airline? Or the worst airline? What happens if my flight is delayed? Or cancelled? Would I be put on a new flight? Or would I be refunded? What if it takes me days to get home? Hmm, benefits of a UK staycation. When life gives you questions, get answers at which.co.uk.
Welcome back to Get Answers, where today we're chatting cars. We've been talking about some of the modern features that you might not know, which can be a help or a hindrance, but here at which we like to test the real everyday essentials, how much boot space, how far can your car drive? And Grace has been talking to one of our testing experts to find out more. Yes, so for today's episode, I've been chatting to Dino Barati. He's one of our cars experts here at Witch, and he knows pretty much all there is to know about the weird and wonderful tests we put cars through. Here's what happened when we spoke earlier. So Dino, it's that time of the year where Witch publishes the car guide. Big deal for us, isn't it? What actually is it and and how do we put it together? Because you're quite a key part of the team. Yeah, so the car guide has two roles, basically. So we use it to summarise the best and in some cases the worst models that have been released or that we've had scores for over the last 12 months. So in that respect, it acts as a buyer's guide showing readers what cars are available, both new and used, that we either recommend, don't recommend, or think are worth talking about. And then the other aspect of the guide is as a showcase for the results of our reliability survey, which takes place every year, and it's the largest reliability survey of cars, we think, in the UK. So apart from reliability, what kind of things are you looking at then when when you're kind of assessing each model that you include? So we take a number of different factors into consideration that can vary from things like safety. Because we founded EuroNCAP, we helped to found the organisation back in 1996. Just for anyone who's listening who, who isn't familiar, EuroNCAP, can you explain what that is? EuroNCAP is a European organisation that was founded in 1996 and it basically it crash tests new cars. It can be everything up to 70, 80 a year depending on what the manufacturers want to submit for testing. And basically every car that gets tested has a star rating. So five stars is very good, excellent. Most cars nowadays do score five stars. That then goes down to four, three, two, one, and in very rare cases, zero stars. What we do is basically any car that scores three stars or less in the Euro NCAP tests is an automatic don't buy from us, whether it's a new car or a used car. Is it right that our labs carry out over 200 tests on each car? Yeah, our lab does carry out a lot of tests on each car. I mean, they can have each vehicle for two weeks. That's how long it can take them to carry out tests on each car, basically. Can you give us an example of of some of the tests that they do? So our lab has a collection of foam bricks that it uses to test usable boot space. It does this by placing the bricks in the boot of the car and then measuring how many there are, because the bricks are are usually different sizes, they can then look at those bricks and work out how much usable space there is. The amount of usable space there is very rarely tallies with what the manufacturer claims the car has for actual boot space. So do you find that a lot then, where a car manufacturer will make a claim, but then when we actually go to test it, we, we find that that's not actually the case? Yeah, I mean, so anything from MPG, EV range, boot space it's very unusual that our tests will show that a manufacturer claim is accurate although in some cases our tests actually show that say ev range can actually be better than a manufacturer claims which is very unusual but is very interesting are there any other unusual tests that help us get our results yeah so our lab also has a test track facility that they use for various performance benchmarking tests but they also use it to perform a hazard avoidance test. So they will set up basically a situation where you have to swerve out of a lane 
at very short notice and then swerve back into the lane if you've got to avoid, say, a stalled car or another type of hazard. And they'll drive the car at about 56 miles an hour into that scenario and then they'll try to steer the car out of the lane into the next lane as quickly as possible to avoid the hazard. Right. And what about things like comfort? How do you test that? So we have a dummy that we use to measure the amount of height and legroom that's available for passengers in the front and the back of the car. Our engineers will put this dummy into the car, set it up so it's comfortable for passengers in the front and the back, and then they'll measure how much space there is available for people to sit in the car. Mm, Okay, that is interesting. And I can actually confirm that I am not that dummy that they talked about that they put in the car. <laughs> Do you know that that dummy? When 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 I was speaking to him about it, I was envisioning this. You know, like when you see car crashes when they've like set up a car crash and there's like an awful dummy being thrown around. I thought it was going to be like that kind of dummy, but it isn't. It's like just a series of I don't know levers and things to be different sizes of person, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, all of that. And all of the results from our testing are in our brand new car guide, which is out now. It's got reviews of hundreds of cars and includes our favourite cars for 2024, which covers everything from the best family car, the best AV, hybrids and more. To get the full details on that, you need to be a Witch member, but we asked nicely and the car team said we can give away a couple of interesting nuggets. For example, if reliability is your thing, then Japanese manufacturers continue to score highly, while the Renault Zoe, one of the most popular electric vehicles, continues to perform poorly in our rankings because it received a zero-star crash test score from the European car testing people. Really quite shocking. If you want the full details on that, on how to sign up, I'll put a link in the description for today's episode. So, Sam, you've listened to that. What did you make of what you've heard? It's kind of, I suppose, a less sexy way of of testing cars, maybe, than you would with a a Lamborghini. I think that sort of testing, which you guys do and there's people that do, is, is really important. I think being able to look up and compare between cars and all done scientifically makes a huge difference and like i get friends asking me sometimes less than i'd hope often they just tell me what they've bought and i've gone why have you done that but doing all these things they might go okay i've bought for example grace you're saying oh we're looking for a slightly bigger car now are you looking for a bigger car because you want a bigger car or do you want more space there might be a manufacturer that makes a car that's the same size that might have not even necessarily more interior space it just might be much more usable one that we've come across with our cars is if you've got a big kind of holiday luggage bag. Some cars, you can put that bag in end on, sort of pointing away from you, straight in the boot, and therefore you might be able to get, I don't know, four side by side. Whereas some, it's not quite deep enough, or the seat reclines back a little bit, and some cars let you move the backrest on the seat, which could change this problem. And it means that you can just about fit it in. Whereas if you have to put them sideways, the Tetris doesn't work and you might only get three in rather than four. Really kind of niche nerdy type stuff. No, we love it. Trying to look at manufacturers' literage on their websites, this is when it starts getting nerdy, there is no set standard for measuring boot space. So when manufacturers say the literage of their boot, 
in theory, they're meant to do up to, um, or a lot of manufacturers do up to where that cover is, whatever it's called, the parcel shelf, so that you can put the luggage in the car and see over the top and use the car as per normal. When you're looking, I'm tempted to do this because I've had a small kid in the last couple of years and our cars have slightly got bigger and bigger and bigger as time has gone on, is like, get your car at home, put in the a bunch of big bags and go, this fits in our car at home. This is a typical weekend. And then just take those bags with you to the dealership and be like, can I put them in that car? That's a good idea. See if it fits. Like If it fits and you go, oh, I've got loads more space or actually it's kind of the same, then you've got a much better idea of, let's say, the load capacity of the car. Speaking of car dealerships, you must have come across a fair few salespeople in your time, Sam. Do you have any tips here on how to kind of wade through some of their sales patter and get a good deal? I would always say do all your research. And if you're after something super rare, then it sort of narrows it down often anyway. There's only a few places you can go to. So then picking someone you trust is helpful. If it's a secondhand car, you can get inspections. If you're buying from a main OEM dealer, they generally you get a warranty. So that's quite nice. That sort of alleviates some of that. You can go and get an outside, like a non-manufacturer warranty, which I did a podcast with someone about this topic recently. And they are the same product. I think a lot of people go, oh, okay, I've gone to Porsche and they give me a two-year warranty. Okay, I can go to this other company and they'll give me a two-year warranty. And lots of people assume that the one from Porsche or whoever, Audi, BMW, la la la, is kind of worth more than this second other company. The reality is they're all off-the-shelf products sold by the same people, rebranded. It's like a white-label product. So the warranty has probably come from a company like this other one you're looking at, but Porsche or whoever have put their name on it and they're selling it. It's just part of it. So you can get a warranty on pretty much any car. It will just will cost. They've got to think you're going to walk away. If they don't think you're going to walk away, then what are you going to get? You can look on websites like AutoTrader. You can see how long a car has been for sale for. That's quite interesting. If, if the dealer's had it for a long time, maybe if it's getting towards the end of the month or if the new plates are about to come out, if it's a sort of new cut type car, they might be wanting to try and get rid of or hit targets on the 30th of January, for example. You're in a much better position. If they've been sitting on a car for four months and you know they kind of need to shift it, then you've got a lot of power there. Whereas if the car has only been in the dealership for an hour and they've had five people call about it, then... You might be the person who gets it over the their kind of like quarterly quota and, and they win the bottle of champagne in the, in the dealership. And what about things like looking in other parts of the country for a car? Because car, cars don't always cost the same price in all parts of the country, right? No, they don't. So, for example... If you uh, try to go sort of super extreme, if you are selling a convertible and you are in, I don't know, Alaska in the winter, there's a lot less people that want to buy that car. If you go to the south of France in the summer, you'd say, oh, maybe there's a lot more people that want a convertible down here. So there are shifts and it's always worth, it's very easy to do now. There's places where demand is high, places where demand is low. Some cars are more popular in certain locations. Maybe if you lived in the desert, there's more off-roaders and Toyotas and stuff like that, trucks and things. If you live in central London, there might be probably loads of massive cars because everyone needs off-road cars in London. But there is there is fluctuations, but the internet has made it very easy to 
see what's for sale. And I think that's that's worked both ways. I don't think you're going to get necessarily crazy deals, but you can find stuff easily. And if you're willing to travel, the dealer is also aware that if you've traveled there, they know you don't want to go back without a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are a captive audience. Uh, I've got one final point that I, d- I didn't mention or just a couple of little ones on, on buying cars. So condition of the car, look at the car. If you can take someone else along with you, if you've got a friend that's sort of, you know, that person that spots a spot of dust from a mile away or a, like a picture that's not hanging straight. If you've not got a real, like, you know, car enthusiastic person, take, take that person and just have a look around the car. See if the doors all open and close properly. If the panel gaps, so the sort of gaps in between all of the bodywork, they all look kind of similar. Does anything look different? And then service history. So has it got any? Have people kept the documents? The manufacturer, when they make them, they go, okay, the oil needs to be changed after 5,000 miles, 20,000 miles, whatever. If it's not, what you're doing is you're increasing the wear on the car. These cars are built, things need to be changed, brakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you've got receipts for all of that stuff, then one, it says, what's the person like who's had this car before? If they've got a folder with the name of the car on it and like a picture on the front and they've got every single document ever and photos of, I don't know, holidays or whatever in this set of documents, they care about that car. If there's nothing and there's one key and you're like, where's the other key? They're like, I don't know. You know, all that sort of stuff. It tells you a little bit about the car's life other than the pure numbers. Finally, if you can settle a debate which has been going on in the in our social media groups, which is, are car headlights getting brighter? And if they are, as a driver, do you think that's a good thing? Or are you do you prefer the nice dim orange glow of a, of a classic car? It's 100% a good thing. Anyone drive a classic car in the winter, in the dark, in the rain, you want to see the object before you hit them. Like, I did a great experience taking an old 911 to Sweden in the winter and we mounted some extra lights on it and even then they were absolutely awful. Unbelievable, but seeing is a good thing. Seeing, but then also being blinded. I don't know, well, it's a fine line. <laughs> the technology is getting, uh, the sort of the top end, which will filter down to everything. We have these things called matrix lights now. So they're lasers and whatnot, but as the car is coming towards you, the lights literally part around the car. It's, re- it's really trick. It's on like high-end, I don't know, German stuff and whatnot. But literally, your light is a normal beam, and then as the car comes towards you, a dark block covers the car, so they don't get dazzled, and you can see to the left, to the right of them, above, etc. It's really trick. Sam, thank you so much for joining today. Just a huge trove of knowledge. Obviously, there's a whole lot more where that came from. Where can people find you on your socials and, and listen to your podcast as well? Yeah, um, my name's Sam Moores. I have a podcast called Car Chat. It's on all podcast platforms. Um, you can also find me on YouTube, Instagram, etc. blah, 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 all of that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. Really been fantastic. And a big thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to get in touch with us and have your message read out on our next episode, then we're on email at podcast at witch.co.uk and at witchuk on socials. And that's the same place to send your feedback on how you're enjoying our episodes here on Get Answers. 
As we mentioned earlier, it would be great if you would help us out and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. So, Grace, what are we up to next time? Well, it's an important one, so make sure you don't miss it. We are pressing the fast forward button and discussing the future of scams, helping you stay one step ahead of the fraudsters. And we'll be joined by one of the brilliant team behind BBC's Scam Interceptors, which is a fantastic programme, so don't miss it. And remember, if you want more great stuff to listen to before then, check out the Witch Money Pod for your personal finances. And we've got the best stories from Witch Magazine narrated for you over on Witch Shorts. Today's Get Answers was presented by me, Harry Kind, alongside Grace Farrell, produced and recorded by Rob Lilly-Jones, and edited by Eric Breer. And thanks again to our wonderful guests, witch expert Dino Barati and the brilliant Sam Moores. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Scammers are stealing hundreds of millions of pounds every year. They bombard us with fraudulent texts, emails and calls. And what's more, their tactics are getting increasingly sinister. To keep across the latest scams, sign up to our free Scam Alert service to help you stay ahead of the latest scams and protect yourself. Go to witch.co.uk forward slash scam alert dash newsletter. That's witch.co.uk forward slash scam alert dash newsletter. Thank you. Thank you.